Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. On this Friday, January 14, about 8.30 in the morning from Washington, D.C., and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. It's been another busy week in the nation's capital with a lot of news centered on voting rights. On Tuesday, President Biden went to Atlanta to deliver a powerful speech in support of voting rights legislation and for the first time came out in favor of carving out an exemption to the filibuster for that one issue of voting rights. Two days later, Biden met with Senate Democrats on Capitol Hill to convince them to pass the voting rights legislation, a plan shot down by Senator Kirsten Sinema even before he arrived at the Capitol. In other news, in a case of dueling docs, Anthony Fauci had a fiery exchange with Senator Rand Paul. Donald Trump still on the warpath against any Republican who says he actually lost the 2020 election. And Democrats and Republicans paused long enough to pay tribute to former Senator Majority Leader Harry Reid. Here today to help us make some sense out of all of it, Eliza Collins, political reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of The National Journal. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. Sadiq Reddy, back with us from Politico, where he is managing editor. Hello, Sadiq. Hi, Bill. So, hey guys, we have to start, as important as the news is from Washington, we have to start with the big breaking news of the day. Australia, for the second time, has said that Novak Djokovic cannot compete in the Australian Open. Jeff, I'm going to turn to you as a sports guy on this panel. Uh, the, The Open starts on Monday. It looks like he's not going to play, right? Yeah. And quite apart from the uh, from from the policy uh, around this and and the international politics and the public health, I'm just delighted. Well, as a sports fan, because I don't want him to break Federer Nadal's record. I like oh. Federer Nadal a lot better than I like Djokovic, and I hope he gets banned from Grand Slams from here on out. He's 34 years old, so at some point he's going to get too old to win a Grand Slam, I hope. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> and maybe Nadal will win one in the meantime. So you're rising above the uh, health health care concerns. but I'm not I, rising above it at all. I am, <laughs> I, am, I, am sinking, I am sinking below. Well, it's amazing to me how much attention this story ha- has gotten. It was the lead on the news that I, that I heard this morning. But, Sadiq, this does have resonance, this whole issue, in the United States, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. It kind of shows the the global uh, politics involved here and the uh, the the resistance um, to 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 mandates, the difficulty of maintaining them, uh, all of the questions about exemptions, all, all of this really 
uh, just comes directly into this when you get into the details of the, this case, and it is uh, just a hot mess. And uh, you can only imagine we're we're weeks away from the the Winter Olympics in in uh, China with a, a zero COVID policy, and just imagine the mess that's going to come uh, with that uh, just around the corner, and and cases starting to climb in uh, in China and other parts of Asia. It's just going to be. Uh, really a, an unfortunate uh, situation, um, even if we're coming down in parts, uh, in big cities in the U.S. in COVID cases. Right. And Eliza, he is sort of the um, the leading anti-vaxxer in the world, I think, right? At least the, the best known, perhaps. And I, I haven't heard the White House comment on this case at all, but they must be relieved that an anti-vaxxer, it looks like, right, is going to uh, not be able to compete. They probably are. And it's one good thing for them on a week that was pretty bad. Um, (laughs) I mean, this is coming yesterday. The Supreme Court blocked Biden's own vaccine or test mandate for businesses. So it does just show, I mean, obviously, Australia is taking a much more aggressive approach from the government. Uh, The Biden administration has tried to do that to some extent. And was blocked. I mean, at least on a part of his mandate. So they might be looking maybe even a little bit jealously at what's going on in Australia, (laughs) the power the government can have over the vaccine mandate there. Yeah. Uh, So um, Djokovic has been asked to appear, I think, tomorrow uh, in front of the immigration officials uh, in Australia, where they said if uh, after that hearing, they plan to detain him and probably export him. Um, we will see uh, how, how that goes. Expel, I think, is the word rather than than export. Uh, well, let's come back. Let's come back home here to voting rights. The president went up to Capitol Hill yesterday, met at the lunchtime caucus of the Democrats uh, Democrats in the Senate. He came out um, expressing a certain determination, but also frustration. You can hear it in his voice. Here's President Biden yesterday following his caucus meeting with the Democrats. We miss this time and the state legislative bodies continue to change the law, not as to who can vote, but who gets to count the vote. That's what this is about. That's what makes this so different. I don't know that we can get it done, but I know one thing. As long as I have a breath in me, as long as I'm in the White House, as long as I'm engaged at all, I'm going to be fighting to change the way these legislatures have moving. So what's going on, Jeff? Uh, the president must have known before he went up there that his chances of walking out with the Democrats uh, uh, all united behind this was not going to work. Why did he do it? Well, I, I'm sure he did know because cinema didn't even wait for him to, to <laughs> right. finish, that, which I got, I got to say, that just shows how little political juice Biden has right now, even within his own party. It doesn't help that he got a, a 33% approval from Quinnipiac this week. Uh, but this was always poorly handled by Biden from the from the word go. Um, I think he was too late to this. Uh, I think he had a little bit more uh, chance to get something done on this a, a year ago when January 6th was still fresh in everyone's mind. Um, but this, this always seems to have been a fool's errand for Biden. Um, he, he kind of danced around it for months, much to the chagrin of some progressive groups and black leaders, so that when he showed up in Georgia, a lot of them stayed away from his speech. Um, and then he gives a speech in Georgia that's that's panned in a lot of quarters. 
as being uh, too partisan, as as, mis- as being misrepresentative of, of some of the laws that have been passed, and just not and failing to persuade anybody who he needs to persuade. Uh, so I, I think he was he was always behind the eight ball on this, and, and and I don't know where they go from here, except of course reforming the Electoral Count Act, which he hinted at yesterday mm-hmm. after the lunch. He says it's about who gets to count the vote also. Well, if you're worried about who gets to count the vote instead of who can show up to vote, then that's what the Electoral Count Act is for. And you may actually have a bipartisan consensus on that starting to form. So I think he's, he has no choice but to focus there. Right. Well, at the same time, uh, Sudeep, we learned that after this caucus, after the president's remarks, he goes back to the White House. And he invited Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to come down to the White House for yet another meeting. Yeah, look, this is Joe Biden engaging uh, in in uh, meetings and and processes that are probably hopeless when it comes to the actual policy results, um, but they have to matter when it comes to the politics of it. He needs to show that he's trying on some of these giant Democratic priorities so that he doesn't take the blame. Um, for not getting them done, it's 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 one thing to let uh, let let the the focus go on on Joe Manchin and and Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, but that's that at least shields him a little bit because so far it looks like Biden has been uninterested in, in this issue when in reality he's probably just been practical about it, recognizing he's not going to actually be able to win, and presidents generally don't want to to expend tons of cl- political capital on something they're not going to win. Right. So it makes me wonder if if this is, um, Eliza, the president recognizing in the short term or the, the, the right that he's not going to achieve these, let's say the two priorities, build back better in his present form, at least, and voting rights. So is he playing the long game, meaning I may not make him, but I'm going to show that I was fighting the good fight and that's what counts? I'm not quite sure what is happening because what happened yesterday shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone. I mean, I think how yeah. cinema did it right before Biden showed up was absolutely a dig. And as uh, one Republican senator said to me yesterday, she was putting an exclamation point on a point she's already made many times. But this whole thing was sort of this exercise in delusion. I mean, they were proceeding with something that they did not have the votes for and promising that it would happen by Monday. It's now been bumped because of winter storms and a senator out with COVID and all sorts of things. But they didn't have the votes on Wednesday either. Um, Build Back Better at least came a lot closer. It really did seem like they would be able to pull that off and Manchin pulled the plug at the last minute. Um, But on this, I think there's absolutely a sense from the White House, from Democrats, that they do need to be seen as fighting on this. I mean, earlier, Biden's really low approval ratings were brought up. He is struggling with his public image. They're going into the 22 midterms where Democrats, at least in the House, are seen as the underdogs. And so they do need to rally the base. Um, The people who brought Biden and Democrats in are not very happy with them right now. And so I think there is a real sense that they need to be seen as doing all that they can. But it is sort of this weird thing for those of us who've been on Capitol Hill every day covering this because they've been proceeding with something, acting as if they can pull it off at the last minute. And there was really no indication that that would happen other than meetings. 
but people would walk out of the meetings and say their minds weren't changed. So I think yesterday maybe puts that exclamation point on it, but it's not a surprise that Cinema and Mansion don't want to change the filibuster rule. I mean, they've been there for a really long time. Jeff, you mentioned, uh, first to mention here on the podcast, I thought everyone else has, I think, uh, Kirsten Sinema's speech yesterday, even before President Biden got in the limousine to drive to Capitol Hill, she basically said, you're wasting your time coming up here as far as I'm concerned. Uh, she went to the Senate floor uh, and gave the speech. Here's just a, a little clip. These bills help treat the symptoms of the disease but they do not fully address the disease itself. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. The debate over the Senate 60 vote threshold shines a light on our broader challenges. There's no need for me to restate my longstanding support for the 60 vote threshold to pass legislation. Translation, Jeff, right? I'm all for these bills, but I won't do anything to help them pass. Pretty much. Now, there is a subtext uh, under here, which uh, I've gotten from a, a few moderate Democrats and, and, and their staff. Uh, Eliza hinted at this with, the, uh, with how things are probably going to shake out for Democrats in the fall. Um, they are hesitant, Cinema Mansion. They're hesitant to weaken the filibuster, partly because they're concerned that Democrats are going to be in the minority in a year and it's going to be used against them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in 2024, they could they've got unified government right now. In 2024, they could find themselves on the losing end of unified government. And this is one of the few checks they have against unified Republican rule. And I know we're going to talk about Harry Reid later. We see the, uh, the, the example of Harry Reid when you weaken the filibuster a little bit, you're daring the other side to come around and do it later. And I think that's what that's what primarily she's concerned about. Right. Uh, so Sadiq, his fire was aimed more at Republicans still than at public fire, at least, than against Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Uh, and we hear the president with a tone of voice and a rhetoric that we hadn't really seen from Biden before. Here's President Biden from his speech down in Atlanta. Not a single Republican has displayed the courage to stand up to a defeated president to protect America's right to vote. Not one. Not one. Not a single Republican. Sadiq, this is, I call it, kind of Biden unchained. We saw on January 6th. We saw it in Atlanta. We saw it yesterday. Uh, in the Senate. What's going on? Is this no more Mr. Nice Guy? Well, yeah, yeah. the, the Republicans who have stood up uh, in, in the rare cases across the country are, uh, are becoming extinct um, because they're <laughs> no lo longer likely to be Republicans um, because of the sway that Donald Trump has over the party. Um, Joe Biden is probably at his best when he is, uh, he is attacking the, uh, the, the, role of Donald Trump in politics in American society. That is kind of why he he ran for office. He saw this as a mission. This is part of what he has said will determine whether he's going to run for another term is whether he's he's up against Trump. And so he's trying to to bring that uh, that passion to bear here um, and and make the point. The politics of this are that he has to he, it, it, these are like sweeping changes across uh, the country and he has to show um, with the the bully pulpit, how 
uh, profound some of these changes can be. Not all of them, but many of them uh, are going to, to be seen as, as critical factors in, in the next election. We need to, to, to actually have some conversations about those specific uh, cases, and he can shine a light on them, even if he can't do anything about them uh, because of, of the fact that he's, he does have a couple of members uh, in, in the Senate who are just not, not there yet. And we've, we've seen in, in other years when you push too hard on some senators, they flip parties. We, we're not going to see that in these, these cases with Cinema and Manchin, but um, that is just the reality that they're not, they're not fully fledged and bought into uh, the Democratic agenda right now. Right. So, Eliza, covering uh, the Capitol, as you do uh, every day, the, uh, a lot of action on the part of the Select Committee on January 6th this week. Um, they invited uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy to come and tell them uh, what happened with his conversations with Donald Trump on January 6th. Uh, our colleague and our uh, Frequent roundtable guest, Scott Wong, one of your colleagues on the Hill, uh, Eliza, uh, posed this question to Kevin McCarthy uh, at his press briefing, I believe it was Wednesday, maybe yesterday. Here he is. Doesn't the American public have a right to know what the president of the United States was thinking and doing while the U.S. Capitol was under attack? You know, that's a great question. You know the great thing about that? I didn't wait a year later. On January 6th, I spoke to the American public, not by one network, but by many networks. Well, he did, Eliza, but he quickly changed his tune, right? Right. So right after January 6th, he said that, you know, some of the blame lied or lay with President Trump. He has really reversed that and sort of his new line is there's blame to go around. This is something we've seen with actually a lot of Republicans right after. I mean, we saw Lindsey Graham say something like, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, obviously right. he's he's right. much he's close to Trump. He's been <laughs> golfing with him since. Um, but yeah, McCarthy declined to talk to the select committee. At this point, it is voluntary. We've seen that also with um, Congressman Jim Jordan, Congressman Scott Perry, two others that they've asked to talk to them. Um, they have not ruled out subpoena. Uh, McCarthy, which is, I mean, this would be really unprecedented territory. We're already in it, um, asking them to come in and talk, but we'll just have to see. But him saying no, I think, is the beginning of what's going to be quite an intense saga and just further fuel the partisanship we see um, in the House in particular. Uh, And Jeff, the other news out of the committee this week is that they charged the head of the Oath Keepers uh, with sedition, or he's, I'm sorry, they didn't, the Justice Department did, charging him with sedition. This takes this investigation and this issue to a whole new level, doesn't it? It does, because in part, it undercuts one of the, one of the major arguments uh, of, the, of the Republicans and other folks who have been kind of minimizing January 6th. They like to say, well, you, you can't call it an insurrection. No one's actually been charged with treason. Well, okay. Now, now we essentially have <laughs> right. Uh, so that's that's becomes a becomes a trickier uh, row for them to hoe. Um, and I'm curious. Uh, also, the other thing I, I, I think was really interesting this week is that uh, Adam Kinzinger was on a podcast yesterday, and he says that they're going to do this in prime time. Uh, they want everybody to hear it, and he says even right now they've got enough to make a really compelling case uh, to people and they expect to get more. 
Now, whether that's going to change anybody's vote for in, for the fall, whether anybody's actually going to vote on January 6th as, a, as an election issue is another matter. Um, but but he's really confident that as a as a matter of, of history and the historical record, uh, they've already got a really compelling case to put forward. Right. Uh, so, Sadiq, you mentioned uh, earlier the influence that Donald Trump continues to have, maybe growing influence uh, over uh, Republicans running for office. And um, I, I'm reminded of this because Eliza just mentioned Lindsey Graham is one of those who really um, condemned Donald Trump for his role in January 6th immediately afterwards. Uh, but since is singing a different tune, here is Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, this week casting some aspersion on Mitch McConnell himself with this comment, I believe, Lindsey Graham. Well, elections are about the future. If you want to be a Republican leader uh, in the House or the Senate, you have to have a working relationship with President Donald Trump. He's the most consequential Republican since Ronald Reagan. It's his nomination if he wants it. And I think he'll get reelected in 2024. There you go, Sadiq. He's laying it out, right? Oh, boy. Lindsey Graham. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 one, one thing he said a little over a year ago, it does just stick with me when he was so impassioned with his enough is enough speech, um, saying that, that, uh, that when he was certifying the election, saying, count, count me out of this. And uh, that lasted about as long as a lot of people's uh, discuss with an insurrection. And, and here we are where, uh, where he's, he's come back around and, and realized the, the political reality that he's living in, which is kind of the Lindsey Graham way uh, over the last few years and, and why he's attached himself so closely to Trump. Um, th- this is uh, probably going to be the, the, the way we, we have to talk about this for the next uh, three years or at least the next two years um, because there are only going to be a handful of, of Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's and, and others, as we've seen with, uh, with uh, Senator Rounds this week, when they come out and, and try yep. to, to, to defend, uh, defend the facts of the case, uh, they get destroyed. And we, we've seen exactly the same thing happen to Cheney and Kinzinger before. So when, when Senator Rounds made his, his declaration that he's looked into the facts and uh, they are what they are and, and people need to, to move on from this, um, he is probably wondering whether he's going to become extinct as well. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, uh, enough is enough about um, uh, the goings on with the voting rights and some of those other battles in Capitol Hill. Lots of other issues to cover, which we will do. Let's take a quick break first here on the Bill Press Pod and then come back with today's panelist, Eliza Collins from Wall Street Journal, Sadiq Freddy from Politico, and Jeff Dufour from the National Journal. And today's roundtable brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, otherwise known as the Teamsters Union, one and a half million strong in the United States and Canada under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, outgoing President Jim Hoffa, I might add. Uh, The Teamsters, the largest and most diverse of all American labor unions representing every aspect of the American workforce from vegetable workers in California construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their great work, and particularly for their support of the Bill Press Pod. 
<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back. Today's roundtable and today's panelists. Sadiq Brady joining us, managing editor of Politico. Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Eliza Collins, political reporter for the Wall Street Journal. It was high drama, Eliza, on Capitol Hill this week. Yet another hearing about the administration's response to the COVID crisis. And yet another fiery exchange between Senator Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci. Why, you ask, does Rand Paul, why is he going after Anthony Fauci? Dr. Fauci had his take on that at the hearing. He fires back. What happens when he gets out and accuses me of things that are completely untrue is that all of a sudden that kindles the crazies out there. So I ask myself, why would Senator want to do this? So go to Rand Paul website and you see fire Dr. Fauci with a little box that says contribute here. So you are making a catastrophic epidemic for your political gain. Eliza, have you ever seen anything like that? I think that this was a real breaking point for Fauci. I, I will note that it is not just Rand Paul who's critical of Fauci. And uh, it really is a much broader group of Republicans who are critical. And we even saw in good this point. hearing, yep. the only one who really was like, thanking Fauci um, or giving him credit was Mitt Romney, who we have seen, you know, sort of break with Republicans on a handful of things. But what uh, what Rand Paul did was, you know, sort of much more aggressive in pushing Fauci. And we saw Fauci sort of break and talk about some of those threats he's received. I mean, this is someone who's really just been a career public official for decades. And because of the pandemic has come in the public eye, I mean, he started in the Trump administration and now has become really this punching bag for Republicans who don't like the administration's policies on coronavirus. So there's lots of criticism to go around, but Rand Paul may be one of the, not the only one, but one of the Republicans choosing to fundraise off of that. And I think that Fauci just really 
has had enough. I mean, over the last couple of years, he's really taken a lot of heat, especially for people who don't like the idea of, you know, vaccine mandates and mask mandates and the things that Fauci and the Biden administration are pushing. Yeah, well, and obviously, Dr. Fauci came prepared. He he held up the page, uh, copies of the pages from Rand Paul's website, right, showing uh, to the media what he what he was talking about. These are really personal attacks, not attacks on policy. So deep, is there ever such a thing as senators going over the line? <laughs> yes, it it it, uh, it does it does happen from time to time each day, I suppose. I guess, uh, and and this is this is a, a case where um, where senators get to to do what they do um, uh, for for political gain, and usually don't get called out on it because they don't want uh, the the people who are affected don't want the backlash. But Fauci's had enough of it, and and I think this is a just a, a moment where where you can kind of 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 see how how powerful this stuff is the the fact that there's a uh, a crazy person c- coming with with assault weapons to kill him um in uh and that that was picked up for for threats and um that that is part of what's driving all of this and we're we're just a whisker away from something horrific happening as a result of of these politics and we've just seen this over and over again uh and when we look look back when one of these moments happen you will see all of these specific instances um leading into it and and just your 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 breath has to stop when you you see these over and over again and that's what Fauci recognizes here uh, yeah, I, I must say on a personal note, I only met Dr. Fauci once and it was just before the holidays. I ran into him at an event and I thanked him for the work that he's doing and said to him, I'm sorry for all the shit you've had to take. And Fauci said, I'm still taking shit every day. Well, uh, proof of the pudding there, uh, there it is, uh, bouncing around, um, Jeff, Donald Trump, big interview on NPR this week, um, <laughs> didn't go too well, right? <laughs> well, the, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, uh, why did Donald Trump agree to an interview with NPR to begin with? Uh, or, or maybe why did NPR want to interview Donald Trump to begin with? <laughs> well, you could, you could see that. Um, from, from what I read, uh, Inskeep had been working on this for, for a long time. Right. And uh, apparently he, he, got, he got a champion somewhere in Trump world and Trump finally agreed to do it. But if you're Donald Trump, I, I can't imagine what you thought was going to happen <laughs> and, and that, that it was going to end any differently than it ended. <laughs> And truthfully, if you're Steve Inskeep, I, I can't imagine that you would imagine it would have ended any differently either than Trump hanging up. Um, the, the the questions were, you know, you, you you could have written the script of this beforehand as as a as, a, as an observer. Um, I, I did think it was really interesting that Trump was was doing an interview that wasn't on Fox, Newsmax, or OAN mm-hmm. or Alex Jones or, or wherever. So I think that was. That was notable. Uh, what Trump said and what he did was was not really notable or surprising at all. It played out exactly as I thought it would. Yeah, he said uh, basically repeating the same lies he's told everybody else. I uh, the part of the interview I remember is just that look, nobody showed up at Joe Biden's rallies. How could he get eighty million votes, right? And look at all the people that came to my rallies. 
So right, and then he listed off a couple of of uh, politicians, Kari Lake in uh, Arizona, who he said are quote really good on this issue. Uh, I, I the, the the issue that the that the 2020 election was somehow stolen. Uh, so right. he's he's still pushing this. He's gonna push it. I don't know that he's constitutionally incapable, uh, constitutionally capable of admitting that he lost. So I, I don't think we're ever gonna get a different tune out of him. Yeah. So on the political side, Eliza, something that I, I find puzzling this week is the uh, chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, who never wants us to remind people that she is uh, the niece of Mitt Romney. Uh, <laughs> she announced that uh, they were going to tell Republican candidates in 2024 not to participate in presidential debates run by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Really? I mean, what are they going to have an empty chair? This is good for the party. What's going on? Yeah, I can't even begin to speculate what's going on. Um, other than that, this was something that you know President Trump and his team were unhappy with dealing that with them in 2020. Um, there were lots of issues. It was public. There, I believe there was a yeah. debate skipped. Um, I don't know if this is trying to appease Trump and his team or what, but it seems really strange at the beginning of 22 to take hard lines like this when we're not even through the midterms. Um, <laughs> you know, and we, we don't really see the RNC weigh in on a lot of things. Another thing to point out is that usually by the time this comes around, Republicans have their candidate and basically it's their allies that are in the RNC. So in theory, it could be a different group of people, at least, you know, at the top. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this sticks, but they're certainly weighing in maybe to keep people's minds on 24. I'm just not quite sure what's going on there. Yeah. So deep. And also the commission, uh, and I know a couple of members of the commission very well, they negotiate and they make their deals with the candidates, right? What, not with the national committee. So you're the Republican nominee for president and you're not going to debate your opponent. Yeah, this this whole thing is is so wild. The 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 chair of the Commission on Presidential Debates is the former uh, chair of the RNC throughout the nineteen yeah, eighties right. and the Reagan years, and that that just shows how far we've come. And this is uh, <laughs> this is this is the Trump Republican Party, and obviously this is his his uh, intent here is to uh, to at least keep people on their toes, thinking that it's going to be another Trump driven uh, cycle. Um, that goes into this. I think al almost any other Republican would probably uh, want to see the debates happen uh, in a form that they can actually get all the attention for um, because it is a, a big audience. And so this is really just another thing that comes down to the Trump factor of whether he'll run or not. So Jeff, uh, and you mentioned earlier, we wanted to touch on this. The man from Searchlight, Nevada came back to the United States Capitol to lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, I thought it was remarkable that um, Republicans and Democrats, they all took time to come out and pay their respects. It was uh, one rare moment of of unity and coming together. It was, and we saw this really twice in the span of, of what about a month with Bob Dole mm -hmm. and then Harry Reid, where you had uh, people from from both parties coming out to pay their respects. Um, with with Reed, I was I, I must admit I was a little bit more surprised. I thought some uh, I thought some Republicans would would stay away just because Reed was so was so prickly at, <laughs> at, at, at times to you know to to put it 
mildly. It's a good uh, word for him. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't always the most uh, the most uh, personally personally warm kind of guy. Um, he, I guess you could say, he was sort of the Democratic inverse of Mitch McConnell. Very, very effective, but not exactly the warmest guy you 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 could find. And as I as I hinted at before, I just I thought historically it was it was really interesting the timing of all this at a time when we're talking about and debating the future of the filibuster um, to see people remembering Harry Reid, who one of his primary legacies, right. it has to be said, is is weakening the filibuster for for judicial nominees, which Republicans then took and 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 essentially weakened for all judicial nominees all the way up to the Supreme Court. Eliza, were you there when Harry Reid was um, majority leader? And uh, does his influence or impact still kind of resonate in the Senate? I was not on the Hill yet when he was um, majority leader, mm-hmm. but it absolutely does. I mean, Schumer is sort of his hand-picked number yep. two. Reid was his mentor. They have very different styles. I mean, when we're talking about uh, Reid being prickly, uh, Schumer is the opposite of that. He, you know, Reed is known for hanging up his phone um, mid-conversation. Schumer is known for his flip phone, for knowing every senator's phone number and calling them constantly. So they have very different styles, but, you know, Schumer came up under Reed. And so I think that is a huge part of it. And then just a, the conversation around the filibuster. I mean, Reed did weaken the filibuster. He basically made the first move. And now they're talking about getting rid of it altogether. But um, he has certainly played a role and continues to play a role in the Senate. And for better or for worse, Schumer is compared to him a lot. I mean, talking about this voting rights rules change vote series um, in the coming week, I'm talking to a lot of people who keep comparing Schumer to Reed. So he does cast a long shadow. Yeah, um so, so deep, it it does make you wonder. Following up on Eliza's comments, how Harry Reid would handle this impasse over both voting rights and the Build Back Better. It makes me think that he he'd be able to find a way to get both done. You know, at least on Build Back Better, you'd think he would have uh, he would have been able to 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 pull that off. But the 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 reality here is Harry Reid recognized in a that, that the political environment was changing uh, tremendously when he got to uh, to changing the filibuster um, for for justices because he was the, really the first person to have to deal with the the, the Tea Party movement and mm-hmm. a completely different environment in the Senate, a completely different set of politics about how how uh, what's being done, and that was obviously the very start of. Uh, the social media era and and uh, the the height of of Fox News and um, all, all of this must have influenced his thinking in a way that probably Biden is coming around to right now and recognizing that that it's not the old Senate it's uh, it's a different environment times have changed and they they all felt it was more dire than before but these will be be these will go down as historical markers uh, for for why the country. Uh, changed so much um, in, in this period is is partly because of of what was happening around at that time that led the Senate to change. 
Okay, great roundup of the big news of the week here from Washington, D.C. with today's panelists, Eliza Collins, Jeff Dufer, and Sudeep Reddy. And with all of that going on, uh, there's always one story that makes you stop in your tracks and say, oh, wow, look at that. Uh, makes you either laugh or cry or scratch your head. We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Jeff Dufer, start us off. What caught your attention? Well, it's a headline that caught my attention. It's a little morbid. It's a little dark. Uh, but the headline from the Washington Post yesterday reads, quote, the ethics of a second chance. Pig heart transplant recipient <laughs> stabbed a man seven oh, times oh. years ago. Oh, I saw that. Oh, God. Chef's kiss. Mm. Now, this is, of course, the guy who got the experimental uh, pig yeah. heart, the first guy ever to do it. And they, uh. the reporter dug around in his background. Sure enough, <laughs> a couple decades mm. ago, he had uh, he apparently tried to kill a guy by murder, uh, stabbing him seven times. And leaving now, him paralyzed for the rest yeah. of his life. Yeah. Now, um, so on the one hand, we are not a society that rations health care or makes health care available based on someone's previous life choices. But but then again, nor did I think we were living in a Wes Craven movie yeah. where the uh, where the local murderer gets an experimental heart so he can then continue his wicked ways. Yeah. The guy went to prison, served his time, came out and then obviously health problems and he gets this heart. It it, it did make you wonder, right? <laughs> who makes the decisions okay, yeah you can't you can't make it up oh <laughs> well top that sadeep uh <laughs> your favorite story of the week <laughs> that is that is a, an incredible one as i was reading through it uh, i i uh i have to go back to to the combination of so many things we've talked about this week vaccines uh and donald trump and i my my uh, i just stopped in my tracks on, on the screen when i I saw this reference to the, the former president on OAN calling uh, politicians who wouldn't disclose their booster status yeah. gut, gutless, gutless. Um, who would have thought in all of the bizarre politics of the last year, it would be Donald Trump who's accusing politicians of being gutless for not talking about the booster. It just shows that like, obviously uh, Trump has acknowledged that he got the booster and anybody who's, who's trying to challenge him for it is going to get ripped apart. And in this case, it was uh, a, a an unnamed uh, reference to uh, to the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. And, Ron DeSantis, and, yeah. And th this was DeSantis not willing to say that, but it just it just really underscores how much different of a situation we'd be in uh, in this moment if uh, Trump and others had been pu pushing uh, for vaccination and a booster rather than just acknowledging it grudgingly when they've gotten the, the question. Um, yeah, and maybe uh, right. Trump realizes he's he's probably uh, losing a lot of supporters. A lot of his supporters are probably dying off by not getting <laughs> vaccinated and boosted, and uh, losing fifteen hundred or two thousand people a day if they're slightly more uh, Trump leaning is going to be a problem for him in uh, in a couple of years. Well, I found his gutless comment particularly amusing because, as we recall, he was not exactly forthright. Uh, when he got the vaccine, exactly. <laughs> the first time, the vaccination, the first time or the second time, or even when he got the booster, right? It was sort of a very, very deep secret. He wasn't forthright when he got the disease. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how about uh, your favorite story there, Eliza? Okay, I'm going to go a completely different direction than both of you those. Got it. But uh, some of my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal last night had a story about TikTok stars making more than oh. Fortune 500 CEOs. Yes. And I just 
you said head scratching. I mean, this just blows my mind. Um, someone who posts videos of them dancing, uh, she made $17.5 million last year, which compare that mm. to ExxonMobil CEO who made 15 million, Starbucks 14. <laughs> I mean, and she's not alone. She's just like the top earner. So it blows my mind um, that these people are making more money for TikTok videos. It is insane. Absolutely insane. All right. Well, my favorite story of the week. uh, Thank you, uh, all of you, for not mentioning it. I was afraid one of you might steal it from me because it was the fact that the crowds on Capitol Hill this week were not crowds of protesters. They were crowds of bird watchers, because has appeared on Capitol Hill, a snowy owl has made its way from the Arctic down to Washington, D.C. It seems to be hanging out at Union Station, where it's been seen on the globe on top of the uh, uh, statue there, a monument to Columbus, uh, Christopher Columbus in the center of the circle. Uh, And the snowy owl has attracted crowds of bird watchers. It's been seen... um, uh, around the Capitol, it's been seen around the Capitol, the Senate and House office buildings, and flying around the neighborhoods of Capitol Hill. Sadiq, I know whether you've had a chance to spot it. I haven't yet, but um, I've been I, looking, haven't seen it. I, I love the fact it's getting so much attention, and it is staying around, even though it must be very lonely, uh, because it is thriving on rats and pigeons all of which are (laughs) to be found in great numbers at Union Station. I can attest to that. (laughs) And so um, we we welcome the snowy owl to Washington, D.C., salute it, and thank it for its contribution of helping us get rid of our population of rats and pigeons. There's to the snowy owl. All right, a big thank you to Eliza Collins from the Wall Street Journal, Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Sadiq Reddy from Politico, Thank you, panelists, and thank you all, good friends and neighbors, for listening today, being part of the podcast. Have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves, please. Omicron, yeah, the levels may be um, you know, going down, but it's still a real risk out there. So be very, very careful when that, wear that N95 mask. Take care of yourselves, and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.